0: All right, if you've got your Bibles this morning, please open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Amen. You know, while you're doing that, I just make a note for those that might not know that very first song, or second, yeah, the second song we sang this morning is Anyone Worthy, right? I hope you know where that comes from. It comes from the book of Revelation. The question is, Anyone Worthy? to break the seal and open the scroll. And I, I was, I'm not sure what chapter in Revelation that is, but it's in the book of Revelation, and I strongly suggest you you take the time to find that passage and read it. John is weeping when he says it, because he's deeply concerned that no one will be found who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll. And then one steps forward who is magnificent passage of scripture. It'll really uh, light that light that beautiful song up for you. So take the time to find that. I think it's pretty early in the book of Revelation. So, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians. Just did it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're continuing in our study of the Corinthian letter. Uh, the apostle is continuing to speak uh, to the matter of service or ministry, something he started uh, in the second chapter, talking about our being called to serve Christ. That is a product of are being conquered by Christ, right? Conquered not in the sense of defeated, but in the sense of Him winning us over, in the sense of Him finding victory over our own carnality that we might serve Him. We are those led in that triumphant procession that we talked about way back in the second chapter. Um, We're called to serve Christ. We're called to serve His church, His kingdom. We're called to serve one another. And he's continuing to speak about the matter of living as the children of God, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, uh, while living in a fallen world. And the challenges that represents. We're all, I think, familiar with that. Uh, and so far we've learned, I think, some essential truths. Um, again, we're, we're all called to be servants. That's not an option. That's not a special category of Christian. We are all called to be servants. Paul made that clear. We're bought with a price. for his, right? That's over in Romans. Um, Being called to service and being called to serve is possible because he's made us adequate. We learned that in the third chapter. Uh, If you don't think you're adequate to serve Christ, that's no excuse because you're wrong. Because he made you adequate. He didn't start adequate, but he made you adequate. We got that out of chapter 3. Now here in chapter 4, we go to the next step. Paul's kind of being lineal here. Um, it's a very large, logical argument, seeing as we're called to serve, especially for those who just might not feel up to it. You're sitting here going, okay, pastor, if you really knew me, you'd never even suggest that I would be of any value in the kingdom. This, if that's you... Um this chapter is is really really for you. Um, you know, if you're sitting here feeling, you know, I've I've got my hands full just being a Christian, just trying to live like a Christian and walk like a Christian, and I've got my hands full with that. This chapter is really, really for you. So I want to encourage you to really focus in this morning. And we're gonna do things a little bit different. Last week we looked at a whole chapter. This week we're going to zero right in on one verse. Don't normally do that, but I think it's really critical that we do that this morning. We're going to start by looking just quickly at the whole chapter. Got to make sure we stay in context. Um, But then we're going to, again, focus in on one verse, and then finally we'll look at the applications of that verse. Um, The the verse is chapter 4, verse 7, and it reads this way, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not God from ourselves. Father, we thank you for your word. As we look to your word this morning, as we consider what it says uh, when it was first read, and as we consider what it says today, Lord, we know that your word speaks a consistent, unchanging truth to your people. And just give us uh, ears to hear it this morning, Lord. Minds the process at hands and feet to make it real in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, look at the chapter as a whole really quick. Focus on that one verse and then talk about the implications. Uh, The chapter as a whole, it starts with Paul continuing the whole matter of the veil. If you remember from chapter 3, Paul refers back to Exodus, where Moses came down from the mountain, and they put a veil over his face, because he'd been in the presence of God the very immediate... We could almost say physical or geographic presence of God, like God was right there. And as a result, Moses' face shone so brilliantly, people couldn't look at it. They put a veil over it. And Paul makes the point, back in the previous chapter, that also concealed the fact that it was fading. The longer that Moses spent away from the, we might say, physical or geographic, locational presence of God, the more that glory faded, that people couldn't see that. And Paul continues with that idea of a veil. But here he kind of changes it a little bit and he talks about the fact that that veil also shields people from the knowledge of God. And he uses that to define the condition of the unbelieving. Those who do not believe in Christ do not believe because he says the God of this age has veiled their mind. This is verse 3. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the Gospel of the glory of God. And really... Lock in on that phrase, the light of the, glo- of, the light of the gospel of the glory of God. Paul continues that all the way down to verse 6, where he really makes it clear that we are to be light to those who constantly live in darkness. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine in darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's our job, to radiate that life. So there's a, a, there's a thing going there where what Moses kind of had externally, Paul describes the Christian having internally. The indwelling presence of the light of the gospel. The power of God to His glory in the face of Christ. That's our job description. Don't you love when you get, get a new job and they hand you your job description and it's like this long? I didn't know I signed on for all of that. Well, this is a one-line job description. Let God manifest His light through us. That's it. That's our job, right? Pretty straightforward. Uh, But it's a tall order. Manifesting the glory of God through us. I mean, given our failings, given the fact we live in a fallen world, given the fact that the God of this world, is you just talked about Him still being at work, that's a tall order. And so that sets up for verse 7, which we're going to look at. But we're going to just for now set that aside and finish out this overview of the chapter. From verse 8 to the end of the chapter, Paul talks about the very honest difficulties we face. And this is a brutally honest chapter. And I do hope you're reading along as we go through these. You get so much more out of it. But verse 8 through the end of the chapter, it's this just brutally honest assessment of what it is to be a creature, you know, made of the stuff of this world, dying as we do, decaying as we do, dealing with the realities of what we do. Um, Verse 11, We who live are constantly being delivered over to death. Slap that one on your refrigerator door. Yeah, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Verse 16, though we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying. That's another one to put on the refrigerator door. The outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day, you know, we like to think if we just do it all right, if we eat right, if we exercise right, just do all that stuff right, we're just, you know, we're going to avoid that whole thing of the decay of this body, and we all know it doesn't work, it happens anyway, right, you might prolong it, but you can't beat it, right, We're, we're, Gonna happen, right? Honest chapter, brutally, brutally honest chapter, talking about the Christian life with all of its challenges and difficulties, disappointments. What it is to be a follower of Christ in a fallen world. Um, and then right there in the middle of that, that transition between him calling us to be light, the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and what it is to be to try to do that in a fallen world. We have this incredible seventh verse. I, I guess you could call it a secret. Uh, Boy, if we get the hold of it, if we get his understanding, it really, really helps, right? Verse seven, Paul says, "We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God may be from, or the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God, not of ourselves." In that verse, there's a there's a contrast. And there's a conclusion that's drawn from the contrast. And that's how we're going to look at it. We're going to look at the contrast first and then the conclusion. Uh, the contrast starts with the fact that we have a treasure. That's where it starts. Statement of fact. We have a treasure. What treasure? Well, he we just got done twice talking about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is ours. That is a treasure. Jesus used the word treasure a lot. He talked about something that was of great value. He talked about a box that you would put things in that were of great value. He talked about the actual act of treasuring or attributing value to something. He used the word treasure a lot, and it was always talking about value. We talk a lot about values. This is very specific. In the teaching of Jesus, we see the simple point that some things are more valuable than others. And in G- when we talk about a value system, in our mind, we go to a moral hierarchy. And the word can be used that way. But that's not how it's being used here. And that's really not how Jesus was using it when he used that word treasure over and over and over again, that which is valuable. He's talking about the simple understanding that some things are more valuable than others, right? I think a really good way to see that is to understand what we value and what we don't. I'd put it this way. Um, Think about that Try to identify the three things you, you value most, that you put the most value on. I think for most of us, it's probably something like, you know, our, our spouse, our marriage, our children, our closest friends, something like that, right? Typically, you may have some other things, but typically that's kind of the, at least the three things that come, you know, come to my mind, the things that I value the most. If you have any difficulty in coming up with that list, ask the question this way. What would do the most damage to my mental state, my emotional well being, if I lost them? That's a good way to determine what's most valuable to you. Ask the question what, how would it impact me if I lost it, right? Well, let me suggest this that this treasure of which Paul spoke of in the previous verses, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, that actually is our greatest, our most valuable possession. That the light of the knowledge of the glory. And that word knowledge there is an experiential knowledge. The word glory is the evidence of his presence. And in the face of Christ. So we're not talking about religion. We're not talking about spiritual gifts. We're not talking even about things like spiritual disciplines. We're, talking about, we're not talking about spiritual practices. We're not talking about anything other than the simple... Truth that we are saved. We have the light of His presence in us, right? We are saved. We're saved from sin. We're saved from a life without meaning and without purpose or meaning. We're saved from an eternity in darkness. We're saved from eternity in isolation. We're saved from all of that. You know, I, 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 I've heard unsaved people say, um, you know, I'm not worried about eternity or heaven because I don't want to go to heaven. Uh, I just want to go to hell and party with my friends. You ever hear that one? I want to pull my hair out. I want, I, I want to start asking them questions like, who made that offer? Who told you that if you didn't go to heaven, you got to go to hell and party with your friends? After all, I mean, who's going to pay for the drugs and the booze? Right? Who? Where's it coming from? Where that that deal is offered? Nowhere. No, no. Life without the presence of God is, is life in total isolation, and that is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying. If you have to give just about two minutes thought, I mean, I do pretty well by myself. I can hang out for a day or so and be cool, but after that, I really start getting, you know, really like weird. weird, weird right? Life and, life eternity without isolation with isolation terrifying. Right? The very fact that I am by faith in the completed work of Christ in me that I'm saved, that my eternity will be filled with the things, with the people that are most important to me. That is truly a treasure. Look at it this way. Think of all the other things you might value a lot. I, again, I give three. My, my wife, my marriage, with my children, my closest friends, right? In Christ, if, if and when I lose those things, through, what, through, through death, Right. that loss, though devastating, is by definition temporary. If, you, if we are in Christ, there is no loss at death that is anything but temporary. If there's any goodness in it, we're getting it back. If there's anything beautiful in it, we're getting it back. If there's anything worthy in it, we're getting it back. All loss for a person in Christ is temporary. All lost for a person outside of Christ is permanent. There's the value. There's the value of having the light and the glory of God in the face of Christ, in the person of Christ. Immeasurable value. We have this incredible treasure. God give us wisdom to be mindful of that. Right. That's one side of the contrast. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, a lot of times I ask you to, I I, I share a Greek word with you. I'm going to take it one step further this morning, and I have a reason for this. I'm going to ask you to try to say it with me. Right? It's a beautiful word. The word is ostrakinos. It's not really difficult. Say o, they're all off to a good start. Stra, like stra, ki, nos. Congratulations, y'all speak Greek. Ostrakinos, beautiful word, right? And what it refers to, and I've got a reason for putting you through that. Um, it, it refers to the pottery stuff, that fired clay stuff, that was so essential to, to life in the, in, in, in the first century and centuries before and after. Um, Ostrakinos, things made of fired clay, right? So very important. I mean, just think about this just for a second, how, how important it was. Um, Think of anything you put something in, any box or container, all the way from the huge containers down at the port, that way, the huge, now they didn't make clay pots that big, like 40 feet long, but they made them big. There are some clay pots in Crete that we had the privilege to see that you could put like five people in. They're massive, and they would put stuff like grain or stuff like that in them, all the way down to like a little tiny, like maybe cosmetic thing, all of that. If it contained anything, right, that couldn't be put in a basket, some stuff can go in a basket, but if it couldn't go in a basket, they had to go in a clay pot. So it was absolutely essential for everyday life, right? Um, Ostrakinos refers to that kind of stuff now there were there were three related words and and, and stick with me on these there's three related words that I, I want you to get um they're all forms of the same word the first word is ostracon ostracon and that was the actual thing right so a clay pot or a, a clay um jewelry box or a clay vessel you would put oil in. Those were all ostracon, right? That was what people used every day, used all over the Roman Empire throughout the whole Middle East. Absolutely essential. Ostracon, very important. But that word ostracon also described what happened when one of those pots got, like, dropped. You know, if you have kids, boom! And stuff breaks, right? Well, they wouldn't throw it away like we would do. They would save the pieces. And the big pieces, like maybe where the handle was, if you were fortunate enough that wherever the handle was, if that stayed intact, that made a great scoop, right? Or even a little trowel for digging in the garden, right? Those bigger pieces, big flat pieces, they would use for art. Because, yeah, Egypt produced some tremendous, beautiful art out of the ostrakhan, the big flat pieces, and they would draw A lot of that stuff, right? The little pieces, the little pieces were ostraca, right? Ostraka. They were valuable, too. In fact, um, they're valuable in a couple of different ways. Ostraka were used for imagine life without post-it notes, right? And I know a lot of people use their phones now. Okay, imagine life without the notepad function function on your phone. No notepads at all, right? My life would be a wreck, right? The Ostraka, the little things, they were the post-it notes because they would take them and they would put them in a pile and then. Uh, You know, they would make lists on them, right? That was not only important then, it's also important now. Because up until the 18th century, when scholars tried to read, you know, the ancient manuscripts, they could read the Hebrew, but they struggled with the Greek. Because it wasn't quite the same. See, what they were trying to do was read ancient manuscripts of the Bible, like they were reading Homer or Plato or those guys, right? And the Greek wasn't quite the same. That's a much older, It's like, you know, 800 years older, and the language had simplified, the grammar had changed, and they struggled to translate the New Testament accurately because they didn't really have a good text. And then they started looking at those little, you know, sticky notes. You know, you know two loaves of bread, a kilo of oil. They didn't have a kilo back then, but, you know, some oil. Uh, be sure to stop and see your mom on the way home, that kind of stuff. And they started to look at those notes, and that was the exact same dialect as the New Testament. And it is those notes, all of those tons and tons of Ostraca they found, that is what has led to the quality of manuscripts that are used for our modern Bibles, right? What they discovered was the dialect of the New Testament was the common language of the people. And that's what they call the dialect. It's called Kine or common Greek, right? Common language, right? So it was important even then. It taught us. It helps us understand uh, what God has said in His word. But it's also used one other way. One other way, really, really important, and uh, it's particularly unique to Athens, right? But of course, of course, this is in a time, and I'm saying all this not just because it's historical data. This is all in the minds of Paul's readers. When Paul's readers hear that word, you know, ostrakinos, all of this is there. This is how they're thinking about it, and that's what we're trying to get. What are they thinking when Paul uses this word? Ostraka, the little ones, were also used in a unique way in Athens, um, they did, in antiquity, they didn't invest a lot of money in prisons, right? When, when people broke the law, it was much, you know, simpler. You know, they'd either like, you know, put you in the stocks for a few days, or you know, there would be a beating, or if it was really bad, you know, they cut your head off, right? One of the things they did, though, especially in the Greek cities, um, if your offense was such that they didn't want to bother with killing you, they just didn't want to see you anymore, they would banish you. You'd be banished from, and it was a big deal. It was almost like a death sentence. I know some folks have already figured out where this is going, right? They would banish you, right? And the way they did that, Athens being a democracy, they'd call the city fathers together, all the citizens, they would present the case, this guy's a lousy guy, we should banish him. Not really, they'd go back and forth, and then they would vote in the end. And when they voted, If you thought the person was innocent, or maybe he was guilty but it wasn't that serious, you would put your ostraca over in this pile. Everybody got one. You'd put your ostraca over here. If you thought the person was low-foul, get rid of him, never want to see him again, you'd put your ostraca in this pile. When they were all over, they would count both piles. And if there were more ostraca in the pile for banishment, the person was ostracized, very good, yes, excellent, yeah, right, that's where the word comes from, right? It's a direct transliteration of the word that was used when they said, sorry buddy, you are ostracized, you are put out, we don't want to see you anymore, we don't want you. Is Paul or is Paul not describing the world's opinion of us? You start walking out your faith the way Paul's talking about walking out your faith. You start manifesting the light of the glory of God in the face and the person of Christ in such a way that you are saying it is in the person of Christ and in none other, and it won't be long until you're asked to leave. One way or another. We have this treasure, this indescribable treasure, the one truth that makes everything else better, the one truth without which nothing is good, We have this treasure in vessels, our physical being, our physical presence, even though our physical presence is something that is so common, so much of this earth, made of the very dirt of the earth, in such a way that we are so easily and so often broken, and yet even in our brokenness are useful. Even when we come to the place that the world doesn't want anything to do with us, the world would rather not have us around. We still are of infinite value to his kingdom. We have this treasure, this truth, in vessels of clay, even broken clay, even despised, rejected, ostracized clay. That's the contrast. And here's here's, here's the implication, verse 7, so that the surpassing greatness of power will be of God and not of ourselves. Right? We are made of the most common of, human, of the earth's raw materials. That's humbling. It's also refreshing. Because it is, it's, it's all, it's all, we're all made of the same stuff, right? So none of us is more qualified. None of us is less qualified. We're not any different. I mean, think about the last person that you had a real issue with. I mean, they were acting like a complete and total jerk. given what they're made of, what did you expect? When was the last time you really disappointed yourself? Like, oh, I can't believe I did. Well, I mean, given what I'm made of, what did I expect of myself? It's very liberating. Humiliating, but freeing. Now, not an excuse for our behavior, simple reality, right? Because at the same time, we have within ourselves, with a character, the very being of the greatest of all treasures, the knowledge of Him. So that while in this common vessel, we are yet the light of the earth, we are yet the salt of the earth, other very common elements, and yet... Infinitely valuable. We are the light of the world, the salt of the earth, though made of clay, and yet we contain the most valuable of treasures, valuable to ourselves, valuable to those around us, even valuable to those who reject us, all to the praise of the glory of his name. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, not of ourselves. So exactly what is this power what is this power that Paul says will be produced out of my life, acknowledging that I'm just made of the stuff of this earth, yet have his presence abiding with me? What is that power? It's interesting to look at the way Paul uses the word power. Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jew first, also the Greek. Uh, and Back in 1 Corinthians, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's what that power is. Remember back in chapter 2, we dealt with that somewhat difficult to accept point. That when Christ leads that triumph procession we talked about back in chapter 2 when christ leads that triumph procession what's our place in that parade we're those conquered we're those who walked in chains before the conquering roman general that's our place in the parade he has conquered us which is to say he has conquered my old carnal nature and i've got enough time with that carnal nature to tell you that that was no easy feat that was quite an accomplishment on Christ's behalf to conquer this carnal man. But he did. And because he conquered it, I am his. Because he conquered it, I have first-hand experience of the power of God. Because he changed me. This very same power that conquered me and conquered you that conquered the de- defeated the carnal nature within us, that broke down the barriers that kept us from turning to the light. The power of the gospel, that's the most powerful force in nature. That's the most powerful force in the cosmos. I will argue there is no force greater in the, in the entire cosmic order than his ability to change the heart of a human being. That is the power of God. That is the power that is resident within us and is demonstrated in us only because we know it didn't come from us. Ever try to change somebody on your own? How'd that go? How'd that work trying to change somebody on your own, right? I'm not asking for any examples. Not going to ask for any examples. Not going to draw any analogies to marriage. Oops, I just did. Um, yeah. We don't change people very well, but God changes people. That's the power within us. Father, I thank you, Lord. And Father, we never want to take for granted the power of the gospel to change people. Father, I know that every one of us this morning has someone on our heart we're thinking of, Lord, that we desperately, Father, want to see changed. Father, there's people I don't want to enter eternity without a confidence that I will meet them there, Lord. I desperately want change in that heart, Lord, but I can't do it. I can't do that, Father, because there's still so much of the world left in me. I am still made of the the clay of this earth, Lord. But that's okay, Lord, because I know, I know my Redeemer lives, and I know the power of the gospel to make you their Redeemer as well. Father, I know there are those that are suffering, those that are in pain, Lord, and those that are suffering loss. We prayed for some this morning. If suffered the loss of a loved one, Lord, Father, our prayer this morning is that truth, because we knew, they, they knew you. They know you, Lord. That the, that the temporal nature of that loss would really find root in their thinking, Lord. That they will see their loved one on that day, Lord. Father, we pray for, this, for your help as we walk through our week, Lord, as we struggle with what's left of the carnal nature within us, we struggle with what's left of the the clay of this earth, Father, we ask, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, by your presence and by your... We know we have a role to play, Father. We know we have things we need to do, Lord. But our confidence is that you are at work to perfect your power in us and that it is your light. If any light radiates out of us, Father, it's your light. To help us this week to that end. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together this morning.